It's Saturday night tea time in 1977 all over again. Dirty Hooers. Cross-Atlantic nitpicking about Doctor Who. From four grown adults who should probably know better. From four grown adults who should probably be working. We're not afraid to say it like it is. All the word bollocks. www.dirtyhooers.com We're here at Dimensions with the ever-wonderful Nick Briggs from Big Finish. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and we kidnapped him last year, as you may remember. This year we've kidnapped him again so we can talk about the upcoming fourth Doctor audios. Yes. What would you like to ask me about them? Oh, you're actually going to make me ask you questions this yeah, year? Yeah, I can't, you know, it's early on a Sunday morning. That's it, it's early. It's <laughs> Actually, 10 to 10, but, you know, at a convention, that's early. Not bad going. Yeah. What can I tell you? Well, I'll start with the basic stuff. That Over the first six months of 2012, every month there's a fourth Doctor single disc release. In January, additional to the, the first single disc release, there's a box set of Tom Baker Lost Stories, which comprises Foe from the Future and The Valley of Fear. Foe from the Future is a Robert Bank Stewart story that uh, Robert Bank Stewart nearly wrote, and then... Robert Holmes, as I'm sure you all know, wrote The Talents of Wang Chiang instead because Robert Banks Stewart got a job script editing an ITV series some sort of thriller series or something, and he had to take the job. And so he, he, he left behind this almost complete storyline. And he's been very happy for us too, for John Dorney, one of our writers too. And uh, Valley of Fears, uh, Philip Hinchcliffe pitch, which I think he pitched after he was producer. They're in a box, a beautifully designed box set. So, And, the, and the, let me take you through the story titles for this, the main series. Can Desperate, I just ask yes. you a quick question about yeah, the, the lost stories? How much of them do you actually have? Do you have literally just a story outline for some of them? Do you have partially completed scripts is there just a title that you work from and, and somebody scribblings on the back of a matchbox not just a title or scribblings on a matchbox metaphorically or otherwise but the other things you said yeah uh, sometimes it's a storyline sometimes it's a bit of script and storyline with foe from the future it was a storyline that wasn't complete it's a six-part story and there are five parts of the storyline so john dorney had to work out what happened in the end <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite fun. It, I've been listening to it. This is a very exciting time for Big Finish because the the edits of the Tom Bakers are coming through now and I'm listening to sound design. And I'm also giving, uh, you know, because I'm just such an anorak about the sound of Doctor Who, of, of classic Doctor Who, I've been sending the composers bits and pieces of Dudley Simpson music from the time and saying, look, I know we can't do it exactly like this because... That would somehow be wrong, but I, can you get a flavour of this in there? And they're really, they're taking it on board. Jamie Robertson as the first score to be composed is for the second story, The Renaissance Man by Justin Richards. And it really, it really does sound like Dudley Simpson did the music. But every now and again, you know, a stronger orchestral string sound comes mm-hmm. in. It's a bigger sound, but it has its real Dudley Simpson moment, vibraphones and woodwind and stuff and drums, you know, one of the key things he used. Uh, so, yeah. So let me take you through the story. Uh, the first one is Destination Nerva, which is set on Nerva from Ark in Space and Revenge of the Cybermen. In, in Revenge of the Cybermen, it's a space beacon, and in Ark in Space, it's a space station on which they've got the cryogenic... Well, I'm, telling, I, I'm telling you the plot that you already know. But we've chosen another period of history, right, when Nerva was first built, and I have decided in my wisdom that it was first built as, as kind of space dock. 
I did some checking around and there's nothing to contradict that. So <laughs> there's space dock Nerva and stuff happens. And that was David Richardson's idea that we should start with Nerva. Certainly his idea we should do a Nerva story because he said it's so quintessentially Fourth Doctor somehow. Mm. You know, his first, his adventure on Nerva in Ark in Space was like the Fourth Doctor's first encounter with an alien species. Mm. First sort of middle of the season story when he was really underway and we started to learn far more about his character. Quite often the first stories like Robot, the the character's not fully formed and I think that's true to say of Robot actually yes, I think he was a very different Doctor after that they were still sort of working out what to do that's Destination Nerva I don't know what, what else I can tell you about that it's got Raquel Cassidy in it who's just a brilliant actress she has such a realistic quality and we created a character really for her I wanted to write for her and with a real sort of emotional centre character which is, gives an emotional quality to the story but it is a good runaround as well and there's a ghastly ghastly monster i don't know what i was thinking of it's horrible <laughs> it's really horrible uh, and then the renaissance man by justin richards as i mentioned which is a crazy reality changing story and then it's is it i can't remember the order now because we've done them all out of order. The first one I did was Energy of the Daleks, mm-hmm. which might be the next one, because I just thought, well, wouldn't it be nice for... Well, the, the fourth Doctor didn't do much with the Daleks, considering he was around for seven years, and, and Leela never faced the Daleks. Did she not? No. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. It's brilliant. You know, I immediately had them arguing with her and torturing her and stuff, and, and she does that brilliantly, because, of course, she doesn't scream easily. So, I, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, 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 there's a lovely scene where she has a real go at the Daleks. She calls them cones. Because <laughs> she just looks at them and can't make out what they are. And then there's the Iceni one, which is the Boudicca story. And then there's Trail of the White Worm and the Asidon Adventure. I think the Asidon Adventure, that's I'm probably giving you a scoop, actually. It's not about to be announced. It's, it features the Kraals. Yeah, so they're back in the final story. And the, the final two stories have the Master in as well. Jeffrey Beavers. So, yeah, a really exciting season, I think. Ask me something else. Otherwise, I'm just listing things. (laughs) This is true. How chuffed were you when you actually did finally manage to get Tom Baker in to do this? Was this sort of the ultimate fanboy achievement as far as you were concerned for Big Finish Audios? Yes, of course. My predecessor, Gary, because Tom had turned us down previously, he had, it seemed to me, rather set himself against Tom as a reaction to Tom saying no. And I also know that, you know, Tom was never one of Gary's favourite doctors anyway. I think he publicly said, well, we don't want to work with Tom anyway. Because he felt that we'd never get him. So it didn't, you know, so he sort of turned the weakness into a strength, I suppose, was his idea. When I got the job of executive producer, I had two aims. One of them I made public fairly quickly and the other one I kept quiet about. The public one was to get the download service working because I I just thought this is the future. Mm. I mean, luckily things weren't quite as rapidly moving as I thought they were. I thought that CDs would be extinct by now. Mm. So I said, we've got to do this or we'll die. It hasn't turned out that way because Doctor Who fans are far more traditional and want the physical CD. So our CD sales still vastly outstrip our download sales but still the download service is really important especially to people in america because they can get it cheaper yeah i would imagine it's also really lovely from a fan point of view to know that you've got the archive there on the site yes so that if you know horror of horrors when you upgrade your operating system it decides to eat what you've got you can still go back and get it well that's a unique feature that we don't really make enough of it's a unique feature that big finish has as a download service that you keep your access to your downloads forever it's a huge selling point and we really 
absolutely should bang on about it. We've, we hardly mention it. In fact, it was only the other day it really struck me that that was unique. Mm. Literally the other day, I thought, yeah, no one else does this. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's a I really big selling point. Because I buy a lot of downloadable music for production purposes, you know, from stock music sites where you pay for the music up front and that's it. So one it's quite a large payment, but that's it. You own it. You can use it for anything. Mm-hmm. And I notice, of course, you get 30 days to take it. You know, if you lose it after that, then you have to buy it again. But my other aim, my secret aim, was to complete the the surviving doctors for Big Finish, and I, and I thought I want Tom to be in Big Finish, and I just just started saying it because there's this belief that if you say things, you sort of make them happen. You can make things go wrong by saying negative things mm. because people start to sort of you know say, you say oh I'm not very happy with this, and then it sort of it, seems to blossom. Yeah, it's self feeding, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. This is why sometimes, I think that was the reason for the relentless positivism of Russell T. Davis and Julie Gardner, because they, they were all very keenly aware of that. You know, you can talk yourself into destruction and you can also talk yourself into great things because mm-hmm. of because it's contagious. All feelings are contagious. That's Andrew Cartmel said to me that panic is contagious. He said, but also he discovered when he worked on Doctor Who that calm is contagious as mm. well and if you become very calm everyone around you becomes calm and they always anyway so i started saying when people said oh well, i suppose, suppose you're never going to get tom and i just kept saying to people in interviews and just chatting to people at conventions i said well i i don't know but i would love to work with him and then people because gary had said we don't want to work with him i kept saying we do want to work with him and I don't know what effect that had. I think it made fans think that, oh, it's possible. And fans then started telling Tom Baker about Big Finish in a way they'd never done before. I don't know whether there's any direct link or not. And so then we had Seb at the Doctor Who online podcast mentioned it to Tom and got Tom to talk about it and then sent me the audio clip of it. Tom's driver from a 10th Planet event talked to him about big finish and through a very convoluted set of circumstances i can't quite remember the order of i really can't i was from a relatively early stage in email touch with tom and so when these things came up i was able to contact him immediately and he would always reply i mean his replies are you know one day i shall publish them (laughs) they're just amazing emails amazing you know there was a sort of full start actually it was just before he did hornet's nest and we were seriously talking about it and then he pitched to me a story which actually turned out to be Hornet's Nest. It wasn't the whole story but it was the whole idea of the Doctor in a cottage blah 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 and he thought Sarah Jane would go and visit him and it subsequently became Mike Yates going to visit him. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and of course when he started doing the audio go stuff all communication ceased. Yes I was going to ask you about that actually. How do you see audio go? They're not really full cast dramas, they're multi-voice yeah. audio books. The way I see audio go is this, is that they're our colleagues because we, we're licensed to them Mm. so when I wanted definitely to have Tom Baker and I could see a possibility of it happening you know I spoke to Michael Stevens who's the the editor there who has you know creative control of all the the output the marvellous output they have and they also employ me to do talking books and stuff so I I love them (laughs) Uh, you know and I I talked to Michael about it and sort of said well we'd like to do Tom And and I think that It was a bit difficult for him because he felt he had exclusively got something that we hadn't got. And I said, you won. You you beat us. You got him. I said, but, you know, now he wants to do us as well. And we just made sure that we wouldn't release them at the same time of year. So that's why we're waiting until January, because their stuff comes out in the autumn. So I think probably we would have got them out earlier 
especially since David Richardson's producing them, because he's David Richardson moves like lightning. <laughs> he's, everything David does has done like it seems like a year in advance. Whereas with the main range that Alan Barnes and I deal with mainly, or co- of course David's involved in the organisational aspects of it, is always right down to the wire. <laughs> we'll be recording some stuff in January that's coming out in April. <laughs> you know, it's quite tough. That's not down to the wire. Down to the wire is the day before it's due out. Yeah, no, we can't do that because everything <laughs> has to be approved. You know, oh, we yes, have yeah people have to listen to it and uh, mark a scorecard of how much obscenity and political reference there is in it you know it's uh, the BBC compliance stuff that all came about after Russell Brand and Jonathan Ross decided to make semi-obscene phone calls on air everything at the BBC now you know they must make sure that nothing with the BBC logo on or license to the BBC can ever make that kind of mistake again. Not that we'd ever made that mistake, and we're very good at self-regulation. We don't want them to feel that they have to keep an eye on us because we keep making horrible boo-boos. We make darn sure, and David is particularly good at this, that there's nothing. Doctor Who is not about being offensive. Not in your wildest dreams is that its remit. I've never heard anyone say, Doctor Who should be really offensive. It should really challenge people. It's not about that. It can challenge them intellectually and imaginatively but it's not not about being i have had things edited in the past when i've found it's usually at the at the sound design stage that you suddenly hear something that sounded just like a nice idea is actually when you hear it when you hear uh, this was uh, the word lord in one of the releases it was a, a single story in 45 i think it was it suddenly it, it was meant to be like a sci-fi zap up and it sounded like a, a high school massacre oh blimey People were dying very realistically and choking and you could hear the, the shell cases of the gun dropping to the ground and all that. Beautifully done. And I said, I can't have this. It's yeah. just it's just too horrible. I said, if someone in the wrong frame of mind listens to this, they'll be very upset. Mm. And, and I could see, you know, on a slow news day and the tabloids, someone trawling through forum posts. Oh, these people are licensed by the BBC and they've done a high school massacre or something that children can buy. Just, I could see mm. the headlines. I could see the trouble we could get into. And, you know, and the thing that solved is I cut short all the deaths so they weren't choking on their own blood quite so much, you know. So people just went, oh, rather than, and all this, uh, and turned the gunshots into zaps. And once you turn into, you change the whole balance of it. One of your taglines is that you're trying to recreate tea time. Yes. And Saturday night, 1977. Yes. Have you just gone for that style? And is there a Yes, we employed a family to talk during the, the whole episode, <laughs> yeah, to, to pass the fish fingers, mum, have you got any ketchup? Yeah. I mean, what it is, it's Tom Baker, 1977 plus. So it has a bit more of a modern sensibility about it. But yeah, we, we wanted we wanted to make sure the titles sounded like titles that Philip... If Philip Hinchcliffe had carried on producing it after Talents of Wang Chiang, that's, that was our idea. And we wanted titles that sounded like he would have come up with them, story ideas that he and Robert Holmes would, might have come up with and do it that way, really. So it's almost to continue the Hinchcliffe yeah. period of... I mean, and Destination Nerva starts at the moment Wang Chiang finishes... It actually begins with the last two lines of when they go in the TARDIS and they're talking about warming the pot and tea. That's that's how you first hear the Doctor and Leela in our story there. You know, so I'm saying it can this is what they did next. This is what they did all over the summer, all over the rest of the year before we got to the next season. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Tom does sound older. 
I think the key thing was giving him lots of dramatic stuff to do. I think, I haven't listened to all of the audio ghost stuff, but he's more in narrative narrating mode in that. It, it kind of gives him a different vocal quality. But if you give him shorter, punchier lines, mm. he starts sounding like he did in the TV series far yeah. more. He has been incredible. Well, of course we were scared. We, you know, he'd said no a lot. And then he said yes, and then he was fully on board, talking on the phone to me, saying, Nick, get on with it, I'm bored here, can we just record some plays? And I was like, well, as I said yesterday, we haven't finished the script yet, you know. But he was just delightful. You know, I suppose I was worried that he'd want to change so much of the script, he'd want to turn it into something that wasn't what we were trying to achieve. But I needn't have feared, you know, his concerns are about character and reality and also about creating interest where you've done something a bit bog standard. And he says, well, why don't we do this? But then he's equally at ease with when he suggests something, suddenly realising he ought to stick to what we've done. Uh, Quite a few times on the first recording session for Energy of the Daleks, we'd have a long discussion about changing something and he'd get particularly preoccupied with some small detail there's one bit where they all leap on a chair to be teleported somewhere and he was very very concerned about who got on the chair first and what they would say and everything and I said I think it's really obvious because you've already said the teleport's in the chair and you're all just getting on it and the Daleks are coming in so and he was oh no no let's do this and so we changed all this stuff and then the next it affected the next scene and he said I've got a great idea and I said what's that he said let's just do it as you wrote it (laughs) 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 we just got on with it really (laughs) It was also hilarious that he didn't quite realise that it was me doing the Daleks. You know? Did he not? No, he saw me leave the control room and I went into this other studio next to his across the corridor where the Dalek stuff was set up. And I was doing the Daleks and after a couple of scenes with the Daleks, he said, they're, uh, they're rather good, aren't they? Who, who's doing that? And I said, it's me. <laughs> anyway, who's that? I said, it's Nick. And, he, and I thought I'd have a big reaction. He went, oh. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. I told him several times that I did the voice of the Daleks when we chatted to him beforehand. And I could tell that the information just wasn't relevant to him. And he was, yeah. Uh, and then carry on talking. And, so, and it wasn't until that recording, halfway through it, that he finally clocked that that was me who says exterminate and all that stuff. Yeah. It suddenly became relevant to him. He is delightful, you know. He works so hard, mm. so hard. I worry sometimes because he's not a young man and <laughs> he does sometimes he really and he and I kept saying to him on that first recording I said Look, listen we can have a break now we can do 10 minutes tea no no keep on come on he wanted to keep working I've never really imagined him as the sort of man who would do anything less than that yeah but you don't know though you just don't know and you know as an older man he might sort of say and he might be might have been difficult about the way it was recorded and all this and he wasn't he's completely Oh, and he's just, he's so funny about himself as well. You know, when, when he suggests line changes, you know, and he's already done a take with the line as written, and he just looks at me and says, well, you can always cut it out, can't you? He says, I'll, I'll never listen to it. <laughs> yeah. And he just, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And he'll suggest something, and I'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll, all right then. And he says, well, don't be so enthusiastic, <laughs> you know. He can be quite combative. Sometimes he turns around and looks at me and he, there was one thing where I said, I think you all need to say this section a lot faster because you're all about to be killed. And he said, well, if you haven't written so much dialogue, we wouldn't have to, you know. And I said, well, that's the point. I said, because you're having, he said, so what you're saying is that you've written a rubbish scene and we have to make it better with our acting. And I said, that's exactly it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I asked Lisa this yesterday. Obviously, Talents of Wayne Chiang holding great 
esteem and affection mm. by a huge number of fans. And of course, you've got Jago and Lightfoot having their own adventures. Could there at any point in the future be any chance that the Doctor and Leela could be making a return visit? Well, you never know. <laughs> there, there could be something, maybe not quite what you're saying, but something a bit like that. Who ah. knows? It was, yeah, you know. I mean, Trevor and Chris are just amazing. And a reunion with them and Tom, I think, would... I'm, I, I'm pretty certain that it's something Tom would enjoy. And I know they would as well. So, as J&T used to say, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to plug before we finish? Sherlock Holmes! <laughs> Oh, well, I'm not going to argue Sherlock that. Holmes. Yes, the second series of Sherlock Holmes is out with me as Sherlock Holmes and Richard Earle as Watson. And we've also got Terry Malloy in the series. Giles Watling, who plays Dracula in the January release. So the releases are The Final Problem and The Empty House, which was out last month, October. November's release is The Rarefication of Hans Gerber. I think we have to give way. It is rarefication and not rifecation, as we have been saying. Luckily, no one says it in the play. And next <laughs> month is The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yay! And then January is The Tangled Skein, which involves Dracula. So are you going to develop that in the sort of like Abbott and Costello vein of no. Sherlock Holmes versus the, <laughs> the Wolfman? <laughs> I don't think so, no, no. And then in April, we've just decided we're doing a special one-off special, Sherlock Holmes, The Adventure of the Perfidious Mariner, which is part of commemorating the sinking of the Titanic. It's, it's Sherlock Holmes much later in life. So we managed to get a photograph of me with my big grey beard, which I had up until a couple of weeks ago. That was an amazing beard. <laughs> I mean, it could have been more amazing. I trimmed it a lot. I mean, it was proper. It would it would have been down here. It would have been. But I had to, I kept hacking it back because I just thought <laughs> it made me look so ancient. And nobody noticed that I'd lost weight as well because I'd lost it. Because people notice you've lost weight mainly on your face mm. when it goes from your face. And, and my face was covered with a beard. So it's when I shaved it off, people went, hold on a sec. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks ever so much, Nick. Pleasure. Pleasure as always. Press stop. Hello, my name is Toby Haydock, and I am the aerial automatic in a world full of dirty whores. I shall make you very, very clean. We're here at Dimensions with John Dorney from Big Finish. Hello. One of the authors, scriptwriters, mm -hmm. and we'd like to talk to you about your oeuvre. Yes, okay. I, <laughs> On I, this, yeah. this damp Sunday morning when everybody's still half asleep. Exactly, <laughs> so yeah. And I've been, I've been up quite a while now, so kind of, yeah, I feel relatively accomplishmentous, so yes. Which, which bit shall I talk about? Oh, Fourth Doctor first. Fourth Doctor, yes, which I've been script editing and doing both of the seasons of that and writing one of the lost stories and one of the first season, yes, so Wrath of the Iceni. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the kind of watchword we've had with those is sort of authenticity and kind of trying to make it feel of the period. That's not necessarily always true. There's elements of mine that are kind of a bit, well, it's obviously it's historical, which never actually turned up in the Hinchcliffe period at all, but it just felt like when I got the idea for doing Leela Meets Boudicca, I kind of felt that it had, that the only thing you could do with that is historically. It just, there was enough there that over an hour you're going, well, I kind of, I kind of know what I want to do with that. And I sort of had the vague idea of the entire arc of the story. It, it, my, my entire brief for the story was Romans in Britain, and I was given, I was told that I could take as much time as I wanted to come up with an idea. And I went to bed that night, woke up at three in the morning, thought Leela Meets Boudicca, and I thought, yeah, that's it. <laughs> told David and Nick the next day, and they both went, yeah. <laughs> 
because it's just one of those ideas which kind of is baffling that no one's done before it just feels so sort of and as I said I think most writers would kind of get a sense of what the arc of the story is even if it, the actual sort of mechanisms there are kind of a bit hard to find yeah but I, I, that's got a few sort of vaguely non-traditionalist bits I was a bit worried it starts with the bit of narration in character narration but, and, and I kind of thought am I going to be allowed to do this given that we're going for the authenticity thing and then the first story I put in into the DVD player when I was writing it to kind of watch was The Deadly Assassin which starts with narration and he kind of had that moment of going yeah okay I'll, I'll be fine they do all the most slightly mad things and in, in contrast obviously Foe from the Future I, I spent an awful lot of time when I was writing Foe from the Future just watching all over I watched about from about the first I think four years of Tom I watched the key to about sort of three or four months beforehand anyway and I was just sort of bouncing around the period because because Tom's performance changes over the course mm. of, and I kind of wanted to do something that had elements of all of that mm-hmm. uh, or find what my sort of take on the fourth doctor was r- rather than ape a particular style or kind of do specifically season 14 and I, I watched all of the six parters and I watched anything that kind of felt like it might have a use or an impact on it I think bizarrely the last two I actually watched were probably seeds and talons Hmm. Um, when I was massively already way way into the writing of it despite the fact that they're probably the two that you'd think I'd watch first just to get the sort of vague sense of what Rob Banks Stewart's like and what the story that took its place was like I, I enjoyed writing that one an awful lot there's a lot of me in it because it was given the synopsis and the synopsis it, it's interesting you can sort of see Rob Banks Stewart leaving as it goes along really in a weird way because the first episode is incredibly detailed and the first episode is almost I think I added one scene and there, every scene there's a very I mean I've tweaked it and changed it there are extra characters and elements of it the scene breakdown that's of episode one in the original synopsis he wrote is pretty much identical to the first episode of Foe as recorded but he never wrote the sixth episode as a synopsis if, if you view it as a kind of a diagram where you've got episode one white episode six black and going to a shade of grey across that's roughly his element the, the whiter it is it's him and then the, the blacker it is it's me but a lot of it was coloured by my perception of what Rob Bank Stewart's writing and in particular Seeds of Doom's like because Harrison Chase is my favourite Doctor Who villain of all time <laughs> just because he is just a jerk he's got no good reason <laughs> to be a jerk in the way that, that all the others are kind of mental and you've got reasons why that you know Darren Capel's brought up by robots Magnus Greel's walk around and then have his face melted and Harrison Chase is just a rich bastard that's all he, he's got no motivation whatsoever there's no apart from his love of plants he's just a lunatic and it's never given any sort of reasoning behind it but I, but I love him he's got all these magnificent lines and he's you know I love I love this one where he's kind of tied the doctor in front of the mincing machine and just wanders in he's, he's left him for about 10 minutes and he comes in and his line is so sorry to have kept you waiting I do hope you haven't been bored <laughs> when he's just about to kill them, you just think that's a wonderful and he's trying to get some of that sort of flavour of what I think Robert Max Stewart is and one of the main things that people talk about with regards to C to D in particular is it being incredibly violent and sadistic mm. and so I allowed my the nasty excesses <laughs> of my imagination all of the villains get killed off in, in satisfyingly nasty and appropriate ways some of them get killed off in the synopsis in relatively straightforward ways and I just go no let's make it even nastier <laughs> And, and it's, it's got a scene that's genuinely the most grotesque thing I've ever written that doesn't feature the Doctor at all. But it's got two of the villains kind of interacting. And it's very nice. It was an interesting one to listen to in the studio because you're genuinely getting quite uncomfortable listening to. You. How sort of, yeah, it's quite satisfying, but it's also quite nasty. <laughs> because both of the characters involved in it are just really unpleasant people. Yeah. So there's a good bit of natural justice going on then. Yes, yes, absolutely. And well, because one of the things I felt with being a six-parter is that you kind of have to just you have enough story to justify that. Mm -hmm. It needs to feel like Doctor Who the movie in a way that a four-parter doesn't. And I sort of built it up to that by kind of just adding loads of subplots and elements of interaction. So it's got it's got about sort of three proper villains in it, I'd say. And 
structurally there's some interesting stuff in the character who in story terms if you kind of like look at the plot from distance the person who initiates the plot the main person who's the main masterpiece of work isn't the main villain within the story uh-huh. if that kind of makes sense yes, it, it does, will yeah. make sense when you, when you hear it in that the person I view as the main villain isn't the character who's the actual villain in the story yeah, they're not the catalyst yeah. they're not the catalyst that's the best way of, thank you yeah. <laughs> good job, good job. I, my job isn't coming up with words <laughs> And, but yeah, it, it, it's it, it, and to try and get those sort of elements so that there's loads of things happening and loads of different threads and there's, you know, a romantic subplot, there's a sort of Jacobean tragedy subplot and there's the sort of main adventure subplot with the Doctor. I'm very proud of it. I think it should be an awful lot of fun, I think. It's, oh, it's, it's potentially really exciting. And how hard was it to extrapolate the ending given that you had five increasingly less detailed synopsis to work um, with? Well, there was a degree. By that point, I'd got enough of my elements into it that it sort of... Kind of got, I'd always said that in terms of writing a long story if, they, if you've got enough plot elements set up the final episode is usually just tying them all off so it kind of half writes itself and as I say because he was writing less there was less to actually get out of mm-hmm. in the final episode I'd actually kind of written it up so that the, 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 the end of episode 5 in the synopsis is quite straightforward though it's, it's, a, it's a big cliffhanger I kind of added about four different things happening so it's it very much it's one of my biggest cliffhangers ever and at the end of episode five and it is a genuine well now get out of that you've got 25 minutes to solve these five different enormous things and that you just meant that the final episode wrote itself because you're having to go right just fix that fix that <laughs> fix that fix that in a row oh and kill him kill him <laughs> everyone you had to sort of get sorted it, yeah, it was actually surprisingly easy I mean to be fair the, the, the trickiest part was the earlier episodes mm-hmm. because I kind of got the feeling with it that Robert Banks Stewart was sort of feeling his way into the writing of it so he hadn't quite decided what the story's about it's rather telling that on the documentary about Faith from the Future on the Talons DVD he says you know there's all this stuff about these aliens possessing the members of the local circus the word possession never appears in the synopsis there is no circus I don't know what he's talking about but it's this thing where you kind of get the sense he's plucking ideas together and it's a very first draft synopsis and so there are loads of little bits that kind of contradict each other mm-hmm. and so the thing is I'd be more authentic to his original synopsis than he would have been <laughs> in that I was kind of going well I, in order to, to do this you've got to kind of do the storyline as written and it's going well let's have this bit and try and tie together things that don't naturally fit together and make it into a coherent whole in a way that he could quite easily have gone oh yeah this bit doesn't match that bit I'll just drop that <laughs> and because he figures out what it's actually about as he goes through it so that was the trickiest part figuring out what the scheme was and who the guys were keeping as much of, of the material he had and the synopsis he had as possible because that's what you've got to do this if you're not doing the synopsis he wrote then there's no point in it i mean you've got to make it your own as well mm-hmm. and a couple of things i did like i added a couple of characters because people needed someone to talk to there was lots of the doctor walking around and so i kind of wrote this substitute companion figure called charlotte played by louise Breeley, who's marvelous in it and she kind of acts as a character who, hanging around with people that they can talk to and describe mm-hmm. things and discuss things with there were no women in the original mm-hmm. synopsis and i recast two of the characters as women and in one case it makes no difference to the story at all it is just a character who would have been played by a man who you've just gone well there's now a woman mm-hmm. and that's fine and in the other case it actually incredibly impacted on the plot and the motivation and, the, and the, the the elements of it one of the main villains is a character played by camilla power who's fantastic in it as well and so yeah, yeah it's an awful lot of fun i'm really looking forward to it yeah i'm looking forward to it mm. having known very little about it this sounds great it's, i want it's this fun. one <laughs> It's, it's my attempt to do, as I say, Doctor Who movie, it's got everything. Episode one starts off in a really kind of straightforward traditionalist way, and then by the beginning of episode four is, is an insane car chase. And episode six is as enormous as possible.
possible. And it was trying trying to kind of just throw absolutely everything you could possibly want into a story, <laughs> into a story. So yeah, I've done a Doctor Who car chase, which is kind of great fun and just all sorts of random silliness. Favourite tipple? Oh, I'm a, I'm a real ale man, really. So Excellent. kind of, I never used to be, but I went to a beer festival with my dad and tried loads of different ones and kind of realised oh, I can tell the difference now. So I've actually got a reasonably good palate for it, I think. I've just been doing a show in Greenwich and was really annoyed that the pub we were in doing the show, but it didn't serve real ale and I couldn't get the, the cost to go anywhere else. Aww. So it's just, oh, it's just I have to have rosé. Jeez. <laughs> Exactly the same thing. Yeah. Oh, really? If you could be a cake or biscuit, Ooh. what cake or biscuit would you be? Oh, no. Mm. Well, I, 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 th- I think the chocolate hobnob is the king of, of biscuits. Yay! So that would have to be the case. <laughs> Cake-wise, you see, I wouldn't want to... I wouldn't want to... Specify. I do like a London cheesecake. That's a good thing. Or just a fondant sponge. Not a fruit cake. I mean, even though... Not, not because of the associations with madness, but just, just because I don't like fruit cake particularly. Good man. I can't buy this stuff mm. myself. If you could meet anyone from history, who would it be and what would you say to them? I, I, see, I don't know... I don't know necessarily know enough about history to actually kind of be able to... Uh, actually, no, I, I suspect I'd have to do Shakespeare just because... Because he's good. And... <laughs> No, what I would say to him was, seriously, can you just leave one thing, one thing, just for posterity, that proves to all of the idiots who don't think you wrote your plays that you wrote your plays? Can you just write in your will, I wrote all those plays? It's not Edward de Vere who dies before The Tempest, which is based on actual historical... Oh, it annoys me. That does bug me. Any of, any of the people who think, because there is no evidence he didn't write them at all, but people will go, go, no, there's room for doubt. No, there isn't. It, it, the main reason there is evidence that he wrote them is because his name is attached to them. And quite, well, actually, sorry, as a writer, if I'd written those, I would want people to know. Even if so, if it was anyone else who was like, hiding it or whatever, you'd put it in your will when it didn't matter anymore, when there, was, there would be proof it was somebody else if it wasn't him. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a rant. That, you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> I kind of went off on one. Yeah, poor bastard Shakespeare, jeez. It's because he's good. He deserves to be given credit for what he bloody did. Anyway. You've been listening to The Dirty Hooers Doctor Who Podcast. Follow us on iTunes or at DirtyHooers.com. Find us on Twitter at Dirty Hooers. See you next time. You've got to do a very loud blow from the nose. She's <laughs> <laughs> got a handkerchief. There we go. <laughs> um.